Well, it is a uh, pleasure and an honor to be able to worship um, with you again this morning. Um, so we are going to turn our attention to the attributes of God's jealousy and wrath. Um, and so, admittedly, this is a, this is a pretty weighty topic. Um, most people, when you come into church or most churches you go to, generally tend to skirt over this issue. Um, it sounds hard. It sounds harsh. It's something that we'd rather um, sometimes wish that God wasn't. Sometimes we approach these texts like Nahum 1, 1 through 8, and what we often do is go, man, you know, that's hard. I don't know if I can grasp that. I don't know if I can wrap my mind around that. And so what we generally do is dismiss these truths, dismiss this self-revelation of God about who he is, a God who is jealous, and a God who is wrath. So what we want to do this morning, though, is align ourselves with Scripture, turn ourselves to Scripture, and allow Scripture to inform us and to conform our hearts and conform our minds to who God is and not walk away going, man, that's hard, I wish it wasn't true, but walk away going, man, God is good in revealing himself in this way and my heart has actually been stirred to love Jesus more. So I'm going to pray again very quickly and then we'll turn our attention uh, to our topic. God, here I, I stand as your servant, and so God, I ask that you would use me. Make these words speak and make these words of Scripture come to life. Use me as you see fit to make much of your son Jesus, so that we can walk away knowing that jealousy and wrath are good, and they are good because jealousy and wrath are poured out on the cross upon which Jesus Christ died. And there we find the goodness of jealousy and wrath because we are made right with God. God help us and use this time to stir our hearts up for Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as I said, this morning what we're going to do is turn our attention to the attributes of jealousy and wrath. So if, if you've ever had any sort of just literature class, high school, um, college, at some point in time, most of us come across that American literature class. Um, for me, it was the philosophy of American literature. And usually, as they pick different periods um, of writing, especially in American literature, one of the key texts that you guys, I had to read, was the sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And usually, it's upheld as a... Um, a a piece of writing, a piece of literature, a sermon that represented the sign of the times. And so most people will read that um, nowadays in modern times, and they'll read that and the, the illustrations that um, he was using about how God dangles us over um, a furnace, over pits of hell, and how the, the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow of justice is aimed at our heart, and its desires to be drunk upon our blood, and People read that and read those images that he's using to describe the wrath and the jealousy of God, and they come away reading that, and any of the discussions could probably prove that took place in your class that people look on that kind of attitude as it relates to God as a laughing stock. I mean, that's the way it happened out and played itself out in my class. We had to read it, we came back and we were discussing in our class, discussing in this instance the philosophy, what was going on, and the view and the sign of the times. And people, instead of seeing this as a true and right attribute of God, they just viewed it as a laughingstock. 
they looked upon those ancient Christians as buffoons who were just ignorant of God. They, they see the wrath of God and the jealousy of God as things that are cruel, not true, not right. And so they f- find themselves thinking, well, we know better. It's this idea of sort of chronological snobbery where they look back and go, well, those poor Christians back then, they just didn't quite know what was going on. But look how modern we are. Look how enlightened we are. Look how much we know God to be better than they knew God back then. And so the conclusion they draw is that was the, you know, early American view of God, but look at our view of God and how much better it is. God's not a God of jealousy. God is not a God of wrath. God is a God of love. But for the Christian, for the Bible-believing Christian, the Christian that submits himself under the weight and the authority of Scripture, we cannot hold these lines of thought. So this morning, we're going to argue for this. Because God is holy, He is necessarily a God of jealousy and wrath. Because God is holy, He is necessarily a God of jealousy and wrath, and the ultimate expression of jealousy and wrath is found at the cross. This thought is going to work itself out in three points, and this is the the road that we're going to travel. So here's our three hooks that we're going to hang our thoughts on. One, right theology is meant to be corrective. Two, jealousy and wrath are birthed out of God's holiness. And three, jealousy and wrath are fully expressed at the cross. So let's turn our attention to this first point here where we're going to see that right theology is meant to be corrective. So when we think of Scripture, one of the illustrations that we can have in our mind is this. If you have ever traveled any old road, almost all roads have those ditches on the side. And what those ditches are meant to do is give us a boundary so that we just don't swerve off the road and just sort of drift off and get stuck. But ditches are given for many things, but one of them is to come along each side of the road to give us bumpers, so to speak, like on a bowling lane, that keep us on that right path and to keep us heading in the right direction. So right theology is meant to be like this. It's meant to guard us and to keep us in an orthodox path, a scripture-based path, so that we don't drift off into wrong views of God. So with this being said, we need to admit that if we are not careful, if we overstep those ditches, if we overstep these boundaries, we can easily drift towards a wrong view of God's jealousy and wrath. And we need to address some right ways that will help us think rightly about these attributes. I don't think any of us would come forward and go, you know what, I really feel like thinking wrongly about God. Like, no one, none of us would uphold that as a virtue, like man, I know John Davis, he really thinks a lot of wrong things about God. No one's like, pat me on the back and give me two enthusiastic thumbs up for that. We, we don't hold that as a virtue, but oftentimes we will find ourselves drifting off in this direction, drifting off in this way of thinking without even knowing it because we don't come and submit ourselves under the authority and the weight of Scripture. So when we set ourselves to know God rightly, we have to root ourselves in the Scriptures The scriptures are God's self-revelation to us. And if we have a desire to know him rightly, we have to draw from the right source. The source from which we draw our knowledge of God absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. And this is especially true when we start thinking about these attributes of jealousy and wrath. 
man, I would put forward, man, if there is any set of attributes that are more confused or more tossed to the wayside or more misunderstood, it would be these attributes of God's jealousy and God's wrath. So often what we think about jealousy and wrath comes from a polluted source. So when any person is said to be perhaps maybe a jealous woman, we think of that green-eyed monster, that, that those actions, those, those thoughts, those words that stir up within a person to where they are looking and they have that desire to have what you want. You have it, I want it, and it stirs up within me these actions and these thoughts of the heart that lead me against you. Or if someone is said to be a wrathful man, we think of the husband with a short fuse who snaps in anger over the littlest things done wrong. And so we see people who image jealousy and wrath wrongly, and what we do is go, man, if it's bad for that woman to act that way, if it's bad for this man to act this way, then we draw the conclusion it is equally bad for God to be jealous and equally bad for God to be wrathful. But this is why it is all important for us to have a scriptural worldview. A worldview is the grid or filter by which we view the reality around us. It's the grid or the filter by which we look at the world around us, and as we see things, hear things, experience things, it is that grid, it's that matrix, it's that filter to as stuff comes to us and as we happen to things, this worldview comes into play and says, that was good or that's bad. That's right or that's wrong. That's, that's holy, that's unholy. This is righteous, this is not righteous. And so we have to have a worldview that is scriptural. Now, fact is, all of us have worldviews. So when we put on our worldview glasses and we look through our worldview lens, we're going to see things in certain ways. And so for the Christian, our glasses, our lens has to be the scriptures for everything we look to in order to know God better has to be filtered through scripture. So as I put on my worldview glasses and, I, and I'm looking through the world and I'm interacting and I'm hearing things in song and as I'm reading things in media and as I hear people writing books and I, as I hear friends talking at work about anything that revolves around life, what we all constantly have to be doing is running these things through the grid of our worldview. And it has to be scriptural based because someone might come along and go, you know what, God, jealous, wrath, man, that's, that's just bunk. That's really bogus. And so then what happens is that's pro- proposed, that's put forth as a fact. God is not jealous. God is not wrathful. So we have to grab that fact. We have to come and hold it up to our worldview. And what we're either going to do is go, you know what, if our worldview is not scriptural based, we'll grab that and go, you know what, that's plausible. That could be true and we attach that to our worldview, then all of a sudden this truth comes to us, we make it part of the filter or part of that matrix, part of that grid which we think through and experience the world around us, and then we start to think about God that way. But we're thinking about God in a wrong way. Why? Because we didn't take that truth that was proposed as God is not jealous or God is not wrathful, and instead of going, here's this truth, let's run it through the grid of Scripture so we can see what God has to say about it, We just grab it, attach it to our worldview, then all of a sudden we're thinking wrongly about God. And this doesn't necessarily even have to be about the attributes of jealousy and wrath. This is about anything in life, relationships, marriages, child rearing, living with an apartment roommate, 
what you do at work, how you write checks, what you give money to, what you think about culture. Any of these things are constantly in the marketplace saying, no, this is true, no, this is true, no, this is true, no, this is true. And as these bombardments of statements being put forth as fact, what we have to do is grab these things as believers, uphold the grid of Scripture, and run these things through Scripture, run these things through Scripture, run these things through Scripture, so that as we have a scriptural worldview with scriptural lenses, we can constantly go, no, that's not true. Why? Because the Bible says this. Or no, this is true. That is a right statement. And we can attach this, and this can become the filter of the grid that we think through. Why? Because Scripture upholds this as true. God is good, and all of God's attributes are good. All of God's attributes are unlocked by his love, and all of God's attributes are given their luster by his holiness. Everything of God, all of God's attributes are divine perfections. They are divine because all of these attributes we've been talking about find their root in the very nature of God himself. They are divine because God is the epitome of, He's the pinnacle. He's the ultimate standard of all of these things we've been talking about. So all of God's attributes are divine because they find their root and their beginning in him. And they are perfections because there is no one outside of God who makes these things the most ultimate, the most perfect, the most beautiful, the most true, and the most good. No one can come along and go, you know what? I can out-holy God. I can out-justice God. I can out-love God. God is the pinnacle. God is the point. He is the ultimate, and all things flow down from him. All of God's attributes are divine perfections, and this has to include the attributes of jealousy and wrath. So, let's turn our attention to the scriptures and see what they have to say about these attributes. So, if you're in Nahum, you can put your finger there in Nahum. We're going to be looking at Nahum chapter 1, and we're also going to be looking at Exodus chapter 34. So if you want to turn your Bibles there and hold those two spots, what we'll do is eventually get to these two portions of Scripture and just look at them and how they show us that jealousy and wrath are birthed out of God's holiness. So when we look to jealousy, now, and this is the important point here. This is, this is really the crux, and I want you guys to be able to get this. This is the foundation from where we're going this morning. So, I'm, 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 man, I was praying hard. I'm hoping that this comes across as very easy to understand because this is going to be that root, that foundation upon which we're going to build the rest of our argument on why it is good that God is jealous and God is wrath and that he exhibits these attributes. But what we're going to look at now is jealousy and wrath are birthed out of God's holiness. So, When we look to jealousy and wrath, we're going to see that these attributes flow directly out of God's holiness. Because God is holy, he is necessarily a God of jealousy and wrath. These attributes are not just arbitrary attributes. They're not merely passing fancies that God displays when something doesn't go his way. These are just not attributes where God's like, well, I'm supposed to be merciful and I'm supposed to be gracious and patient. And then it's sort of like he's looking around at this grab bag of attributes and he's like, oh, jealous. I guess I better be jealous and oh, I guess I better be wrathful. It's not like he was just grabbing it out of a handbag and he just sort of, the lot in life for God was he has all these things and now he just sort of has to, well, I guess I better make them part of who I am. That's, that's not the way scripture presents the attributes of God's jealousy and wrath. They're not 
arbitrary. They're not merely passing fancies that God displays when something doesn't go his way. They are intimately and inescapably connected to God's holiness. So jealousy and wrath root themselves and find themselves coming out of necessarily the very thing we were talking about last week, God being a God of holiness. So last week, we talked about God's holiness, and we defined it in this way. One, God's holiness means that he's separated from sin, and God is devoted to seeking his own honor. We gave a two-part definition, devoted to his own honor, separated from sin. God is holy because he's devoted to his honor, and God is holy because he is separated from sin. So when we hold up this two-part definition of God's holiness, we get the foundation that jealousy and wrath rest upon. Or we can say God's attributes of jealousy and God's attribute of wrath flow directly out of this two-part definition of God's holiness. Because God is holy and separated from sin, God is necessarily wrathful. Because God is devoted to his own honor, he is jealous because he's going to seek to protect that honor. These two attributes come to us straight out of that two-part definition of God's holiness. So we're going to look at these two parts. Part one, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin all sin. God is separated from sin, and because God is separated from sin, he is necessarily wrathful. God's wrath, as seen in the Bible, is never capricious. It's never self-indulgent. It's never this irritable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. All of God's indignation, all of God's wrath is always and only righteous. It's never capricious. It's never sort of a snap, spur of the moment. Well, that's it. I finally had it with you. And then he's just like, boom, and he just hits somebody. It's never a, a reaction that is in the moment like, man, I've been patient. I've been patient. Okay, boom, that's it. You just stepped. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. The scripture never presents God's wrath in this way. God's wrath, his righteous indignation is always good. And it is always a right and necessary reaction to moral evil. It is not as if the Bible says God is angry, so he might as well be angry with sin. Rather, God's righteous indignation flows out of the stream of love. Because God is love, God must hate sin. Sin is morally evil, and our God is altogether good. He is altogether beautiful, and he is altogether true. He can have nothing to do with sin, and this adverse reaction to evil and this adverse reaction to sin is a necessary part of God's moral perfection, and God expresses this most prominently as seen in the scriptures through his wrath towards sin. The Bible labors the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. And this is most notably seen in this text that Tom read for us this morning in Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. 
The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Whenever we come up to Nahum and we read those things, what we first need to understand is this. I mean, because if you were just like reading the Bible and you knew nothing about the Bible and you just open up the book of Nahum and you read that, what you would do, and rightly so, if you did not have a full orbed view of the goodness and the grandeur of God, if you just handed a Bible to just somebody who doesn't have any church background, has never read the Bible before, read this, they would read that and throw it on the ground and go, exactly. That's exactly what I thought. That cannot be the God I love, and I cannot believe that's the God you worship. But when it comes to Scripture, all of Scripture, every verse is in context to a chapter, every chapter is in context to a book, and every book is in context to this whole grand narrative, this whole grand story from Genesis to Revelation. And when you read the book of Nahum, what you find is that Nahum is the second act to the book of Jonah. So what happened in Jonah? Jonah was a prophet called by God, and he said, go to Nineveh. They're wicked, and their evil has risen up before me, and because that they are a people who love wickedness, and they don't love righteousness, I'm going to bring judgment to them, and you, Jonah, are going to be my prophet called, and you're going to go and preach to them, God's judgment is coming, because you are wicked, not doing righteousness, repent and turn. Jonah first doesn't want to do it, eventually does it, and he goes to Nineveh. He preaches the world's shortest sermon, and it's like four words. And what happens? To his dismay, the people actually repent. But what happens is this. That happened somewhere around the mid-740s, and then what happens is Nineveh slowly drifts. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. This nation slowly drifts away from the repentance that we see in Jonah chapter 3. And then what we do is we come about a century later in the mid-600s to the book of Nahum, where you see that the repentance that was evident in Jonah chapter 3 is now no longer true, but they have again drifted back away from this message of repentance because judgment is coming. And so God says, because you have chosen in the light of what you've known to not repent and and come, come toward me and live out in righteousness, but you've made the decision to drift from that and move towards wickedness, judgment is coming. So the book of Nahum isn't just some sort of capricious, arbitrary book in the middle where Nahum's like, let's start this one off with a doozy and really emphasize God's jealousy and wrath. That would really be a good idea. No, this is God's oracle. This is God giving in a vision to Nahum that this is a true aspect of who God is and this is the end result of a life or lives that are lived out in wickedness. Nahum prominently prominently displays that the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, those who are guilty of wickedness, in verses 2 and 3. He prominently displays that the Lord rules over all creation, and no one can endure the heat of his anger. God is majestic in power over his creation. So Nahum asks, who can rightly stand when this power that he exhibits over all of creation becomes the enforcer of God's indignation? And the, reply, and the replied answer is, the implied answer is, nobody can stand. Nahum prominently displays that the Lord delivers those who take refuge in him, but this stands in stark contrast to verse 8, 
where the Lord is the Lord who will make a complete end to his adversaries. So you read Nahum, you read verses 1 through 8, and yet in light of all this, we still have to ask these questions and still think through, how are we to process this attribute of God in regard to wrath? How do we think through this? Because it's like, okay, man, I mean, I'm hearing you, John. I'm seeing this. I, I see this in Nahum chapter 1. It's found in the New Testament as well as the Old. But how do I still process? Because when I experience wrath here on earth, when I experience like an outburst of anger, it is always negative. Always negative. It is never in the positive. And so how do I mesh this up with the experience of wrath or anger or indignation that most often comes to me as I live out life is always bad. I'm still having trouble processing this with it being a good, right, and positive thing for God. So in regard to wrath, I think we can declare with confidence at least these two things to help us out. One, God's wrath is always judicial. And two, God's wrath is something which people choose for themselves. God's wrath is always judicial. That is, it is the wrath of the judge who is administering justice. Cruelty is always immoral. I mean, I think we would agree with that. Just outright cruelty is always immoral. For the guy who just comes along to that little kid, that two or three-year-old, who spills his Kool-Aid at the table, and he's just like, just outburst, just blows up, smacks the cup off the table, and just this outright outburst of anger, we would say, man, that's just not, that's not right. There's something wrong there. That's, that is a, a, an act of cruelty. But God's exhibition of wrath is always judicial. It's never flowing through the channel of cruelty. Cruelty is always immoral, but the explicit belief of all that we find in the Bible on the torments of those who experience the fullness of God's wrath is that each receives precisely what he deserves. Paul writes this in Romans 2, 5 and 6. There is a day of wrath that is coming. And the day of wrath is the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and God will render to each one according to his work. On the day of judgment that is coming... Hebrews 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. All of us are going to stand before God the judge, and we're all either going to receive wrath and condemnation, or we're going to receive blessing and favor and the fullness of eternal life. But there's a day of wrath that is coming, and Paul says God's righteous judgment will be revealed, and God will render to each one according to his work. So on that day of judgment, it's not like he's just going to be like, oh, standing around, right, John Davis, you're here, let's see here. Oh, sorry, pal, I guess you're just uh, a recipient of wrath. Chuckle, chuckle, and then he just sort of pours out judgment and wrath on me and then sends me on his way. It's never going to be that. It's never going to be this light-hearted thing. It's always going to be God standing before us and us standing before him, and he's going to render rightly as a judge renders rightly to each one according to his work. And if your life here on earth has been a life of work towards wickedness, towards unrighteousness, living out a life devoted to sin and separated from God, Paul, our brother, tells us that you are not going to receive a blind eye from the judge. What you are going to receive is a rendering to you according 
to the works you are storing up for yourself while you're here on earth. God's wrath is always judicial. And God's wrath is something which people choose for themselves. Before hell becomes an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which a person himself chooses by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart. Before hell becomes an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which a person himself chooses by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart. And we get this from John chapter 3 as Jesus is talking and having that interaction with Nicodemus. John 3, 18 and 19, the apostle John writes, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So he goes on to say, this is the judgment. So what he is saying is this, listen, there are believers and there are unbelievers. And those who are unbelievers, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because this unbeliever has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And he goes on to explain. So he explains this statement in verse 19. And so he says, this is the judgment, this is the verdict, this is how this could be true, that whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He says, this is the verdict, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So the light of Christ has come into the world, and the light of Christ is shining out into the world through the gospel, through the church, through our individual lives, and as we proclaim the light of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people can be saved from their sins because Jesus Christ died to make that happen. People, Romans 1 argues this, come and they see that truth, they say no thank you to that truth, and they turn from that light that is shining forth in Jesus Christ, and they turn to the darkness of the deeds that flow from darkness. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And John means just what he says. The decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass on themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. So that's that first part, that first, that first looking at God's wrath. So two-part definition of holiness. God is separated from sin. And because God is separated from sin, he is necessarily has an intense hatred for sin. And that second part of that definition of God is holy is he is devoted to himself. He is devoted to protecting and seeking his own honor. So God's jealousy now means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. So in holiness, God is devoted to his own honor and the natural outflow, the natural outworking, because that is true, that truth gives birth to this truth, that God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. He's devoted to it because he is holy and he seeks to protect it and that exhibits his jealousy. God is devoted to seeking his own honor and because God is devoted to seeking his own honor, he is necessarily jealous. So if you'll flip over into Exodus chapter 34, we get a little taste of this when you go and you look at this account over in the book of Exodus. And it's been very providential because the past couple of weeks we've been actually circling around Exodus 32 and 33 and 34, seeing that there's a lot going on there and God revealing who he is 
to the people of Israel. The Exodus story teaches us that jealousy is a name for God. When God brought Israel out of Egypt to Sinai to give them his law and covenant, his jealousy was one of the first facts about himself which he taught his people. So Exodus chapter 20 stands out as one of those chapters where God gives the Ten Commandments. It's one of those famous chapters in the scriptures. And as he is talking to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, he says in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he is saying, I'm the true Redeemer. And then uh, commandment 1, You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment 2, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So God is revealing bits and pieces to his covenant people as they are moving out of Egypt and heading towards the promised land. And one of the first facts that we see is that God says in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God. A little later, God tells Moses here in Exodus 34, verse 14, You shall worship no other God for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The revealing of God's name to his people is, is a significant theme found in Exodus. When God makes his name known in Exodus, it is tantamount to God saying, you want to know the very nature of who I am? Here is my name. You want to know how I think and operate? Here is my name. If you want to know true, foundational, pillar truths to which you can anchor this covenant that we are in, here are my names and here is how you can know me and know me rightly. So in Exodus chapter 3, you get God saying, I am who I am. And in Exodus chapter 6, we have God saying, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And these names speak of God as being self-existing and being a sovereign God. Exodus 34 and verses 6 and 7, we looked at a little while ago. You have God coming before Moses and proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God gracious, a God patient. A God abounding in steadfast love, a God abounding in faithfulness, a God forgiving iniquity, but a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And this proclamation of his name to Moses and to his people at this time was a proclamation of God's name that sets forth his moral glory. He is the pinnacle. He is the top. There's no one above him. Then finally, in Exodus 34, verse 14, where God comes and says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God sums up and rounds off the revelation of his name by declaring it to be jealous. And far from being an inconsistent with all the fullness of God's revealed names up to this point, God's name of jealous is in some sense supposed to stand out as the epitome of all who he is. So what we're not supposed to do is go, man, I understand I am who I am. I understand I am the Lord, that these sort of put forth God's sovereignty. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God of mercy and a God of grace. I am the Lord. But then what we're not supposed to do is come to God saying, my name is Jealous, and go, man, there's just no way we can mesh these with all these other ones that have just come before. 
what we're supposed to do is we're reading the broad scope of the book of Exodus to see name given because this is true, name given because this is true, name given because this is true. And then when he comes and says, I am a jealous God, this is my name, what we're supposed to do is grab all of these things and let Scripture come and inform us and inform our worldview that this is good and right and it fully shows us who God is and how we are to know God. But in light of this, we also must ask the same questions that we asked of the attribute of wrath. How in the world can jealousy be a virtue in God when it is a vice in humans? I mean, we have to ask that same question, right? So, yeah, okay, John, I see this in Exodus 34, 14. Great, God's name is Jealous. But I'm still having a hard time meshing this because think about it. How often have you seen jealousy ever played out rightly? I would suggest it's far and few between. Far and few between. So how can jealousy be a virtue in God when it is a vice in humans? God's perfections are matter for praise, but how can we praise God for being jealous, right? So God is mercy. I can praise God for being a God of mercy. God is a God who is gracious, patient. Man, I can sing praise songs all day long about that. But if next week I asked Austin or Karen and Joel to come up and be like, hey, why don't we just do a bunch of songs where all we sing about is the wrath of God? Most people are going to be like, oh, that's, that's a little hard. Like, how, can I raise my hand and be like, man, I'm so glad you're wrathful. God's wrathful, all singing. That's hard. So how do we mention this? God is jealous. You know, I just experienced the bad jealousy, like, you know, on the way to Sunday morning church or whatever. And then you show up here, and all of our songs are like, God is jealous. And so now we're like, okay, you know, I was there, but it wasn't quite right. And now God is, I'm supposed to be singing like, how do we, how do we mesh these things? Scripture comes to us, and it shows us that there is two types of jealousy that are usually found among humans. But Scripture lets us know that only one of them is a vice. So what we often see and what we often experience is something I would call vicious jealousy. It's this idea. I want what you've got, and I hate you because I haven't got it. Right? We, and we experience this all the time. Right? Uh, I'm the more experienced guy at work, but this guy gets the raise. And so now I wanted the raise, you got it, and now I hate you because I don't have it. And then the guy shows up in the new car that he just bought with the money from the raise he just got that should have been mine, and now I hate your car too. Why? Because I wanted that new car. You have it, and I don't have it. You have the relationship with your wife that I want, and now it's because it's good and it's right, and I see how you guys talk and how you guys communicate, but that's not happening between my wife, and so now I don't like you, and I hate you because you have good and I want it. Or your children are obedient, and they do what you tell them to do, my children don't, and so now I hate you because my children are, are hellions and yours are angels, or whatever. It plays out in a myriad of ways, but what we often think through is this way. In what we experience, whether at work or the neighbor across the fence or your wife or your kids or whatever, it is this way of thinking of it's a vicious jealousy. And this type of jealousy expresses itself in envy and in malice, in meanness of action. It feeds and is fed by pride pure and simple. I mean, it's that taproot of pride that's just buried deep in our heart that says, listen, I hate you because you have what I want and I hate you. That's a vicious jealousy. 
but the Bible clearly upholds that that is not the jealousy that we see God displaying in the Scriptures. So what is this other type of jealousy? It is what I would call the marital or a covenantal jealousy. It's not vicious jealousy. It is a marital jealousy or a covenantal jealousy, which is a zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. And this type of jealousy is most clearly seen in the sphere of the husband-wife relationship. And it manifests itself as the fruit of marital affection. Listen to this. This sort of jealousy is a positive virtue, for it shows a grasp of the true meaning of the husband-wife relationship together with a proper zeal to keep it intact. Scripture consistently views God's jealousy as being of this second type. God's jealousy is always presented as an aspect of his covenant love for his own people. The Old Testament regards God's covenant as his marriage with Israel, carrying with it a demand for unqualified love and loyalty. God's jealousy over his people presupposes his covenant love. And this is no transitory affection, but is the expression of a sovereign purpose. The goal of the covenant love of God is that he should have a people on earth as long as history lasts. So when God's people commit spiritual adultery by running into the arms of another lover, it is right for God to display a zeal to protect the covenantal relationship between him and his bride. So my wife and I, we have entered into a covenantal relationship. I've promised my life to her for better or for worse, for good or for bad, for rich or for poor, and she has done the same. She says, I'm promising my life to you. I'm going to serve her, and she's going to serve me. I'm going to serve her whether we're rich or poor. I'm going to love her whether it is in good or bad, whether it is in health or whether it is in sickness. And so as we are living out this covenantal relationship between each other, and if some guy were to come along and try to worm his way into that relationship, saying, I don't care about the love or the promise or that covenantal relationship you have with your man. I am seeking to worm my way in so I can come in and break that up. And if this guy starts to woo my wife away and draw her away, what you're going to see is a brother displaying some jealousy. And no one stands back and looks at that and goes, that guy's a fool vicious jealousy people stand back and go no that is right for him to do that why because he has entered into covenant with her and he has entered into a right relationship with her and he has come along and what he said is i'm going to anchor myself to you no matter what and for some guy to come along and try to sever that relationship it is wrong of him to do so because the promise hasn't been made to other guy promise has been made to me and god exhibits the same Because marriage here on earth is meant to be a mirror that reflects the covenantal relationship between God and his people. So as we see jealousy rightly played out between a husband and wife, what we're meant to see is an ear mirror and an image of God rightly playing out jealousy 
for the best relationship that he knows for his people, which is this. You find your joy. You find your happiness. You find your hope in the covenantal relationship with me. So when you or I commit spiritual adultery by going, I see what you have to offer God, and I know it to be the best thing, but I'm going to run after and commit spiritual adultery by giving my love, my adoration, my devotion, my worship to anything else, what we are doing is committing spiritual adultery toward our husband, God. And it is right and it is good for God to step forward with jealousy and say, I am not going to have that. I'm not going to have that. So when God's people commit spiritual adultery by running into the arms of another lover, it is right for God to display a zeal to protect that covenantal relationship. So now, with all this said, here's where I'm going to stand and I'm going to say to you that God's jealousy and wrath are good news. It's good news. You want your God to be a jealous God. And you want your God to be a God of wrath. Why? Because in light of everything just said, the scriptures funnel jealousy and wrath down to one place. And they funnel it down to the cross. Jealousy and wrath come down to that place right there on the cross. For it was on the cross that Jesus Christ was pinned and the full fury of God's wrath was poured out on Christ. Jesus became the object of God's intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which he had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Romans 3.25 says this, that God put forward Christ as a propitiation. Fancy word. Propitiation means this. Wrath-absorbing substitute. Romans 3, Paul argues this. Listen, Christ was put forward as the wrath-absorbing substitute. Paul tells us that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when Christ is pinned to the cross and he is suspended between heaven and he's suspended between earth, it wasn't a light thing for God to put his son on the cross because the full fury of God's wrath was going to be vented fully and completely upon Christ. Why? Not because God is capricious, not because God is arbitrary, but Paul argues because there has been thousands and thousands of years that were leading up to Christ on the cross where people were committing sin against God and God would forgive it. People were committing sins against God and God would forgive it. You see, Abraham... His faith counted him as righteous, but his sins weren't fully and completely covered. Why? Because Christ had died on the cross. Those sins still need to be covered by a blood sacrifice somehow, in some way, in some shape, some form. And Hebrews argues the blood of bulls and the blood of goats wasn't going to cut it. There needed to be a final, perfect, once for all, unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb That would be that sacrifice so that as God looked upon Christ and saw Christ, there would be no more sacrifice, no more need, because the blood that spilled forth, the body that was pierced, would be that perfect sacrifice in all of God's wrath 
for people in the past, all of God's wrath, but people in the future, including us, was going to be vented in its fuel, full, white-hot fury on Christ. God had simply not, God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about punishment in generations past. He had forgiven sin and stored up his righteous anger against those sins. But at the cross, the fury of all that stored up wrath against sin was a leash against God's own son. The full venting of God's wrath that should have come to us was instead laid on Christ. I mean, this is the warp and woof of scripture. Jesus did nothing wrong. Right? I mean, we have to hold to this. Jesus is the one who did nothing wrong. He never sinned. There is not a moment in history where Jesus committed some unrighteous act, unrighteous thought, unrighteous deed against God to where he deserved to be on the cross. You deserve to be on the cross. I deserve to be on the cross. Why? Because we're the rebels that's committed treason against God. We're the ones who've sinned against the holy God. If we commit the crime, we're the ones who should do the time. We're the ones who should be pinned to the cross. And we're the ones who should receive the full fury of God's wrath. But what happens? The pure and spotless Lamb of God, He was the one who was pinned to the cross. And this is seen most graphically in Jesus' cry from the cross when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry of desolation as He's pinned there and God's fury against wrath is being poured about upon Him In that moment, there was a separation that happened, a separation that's never happened before and a separation that will never come again. But in that moment, as God was pouring out wrath on his son because the son was taking the full brunt of all of our sins and the just deserts that all of those sins are supposed to receive as they were being placed on that son for all of eternity past and all of eternity future except for this point, the look between the father and the look between the son is this, one of love one of joy, one in happiness. But in that moment on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of this. In that moment, God had to turn his face away from his son because God can have nothing to do with sin. And in that moment, hear me, literally, God was damning his son and you're in my place. Christ was receiving our damnation. Christ was receiving the fury and the wrath that you and I deserve. And this is why I propose that jealousy and wrath as being part of our God is good because if jealousy and wrath were not part of God, he wouldn't be God. But it's good that it flows out of love because instead of it being poured out on you and me knowing that we couldn't receive that and we'd be separated from God for all eternity, he pours it out on his son, pinned to the cross, and it makes a way for you and I to be right. He bore our griefs and he bore our sorrows. He was smitten by God and he was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in this moment, God was crushing his son and putting him to grief so that out of the anguish of his soul, what? You and I may be accounted as righteous. That's the gospel of the cross. What is the gospel? Gospel means good news. You want to know what the good news of the cross is? The one who was pinned to the cross makes you right with God because he received your damnation and my damnation, the full, white-hot venting of the fury of wrath that you and I deserved, but it was placed fully and solely on Christ. And here's the good news. He died. 
but he didn't stay dead. He burst forth from the grave. He defeated Satan, he defeated sin, and he defeated death. That is why he is the perfect sacrifice. Every sacrifice that went before it, that was an animal, what happened? It died and it stayed dead. That's why the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. But the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, could atone for sin. Why? Because he died as the wages of sin is death, but he burst forth from the grave because the sin and Satan and death has no hold on him. The grave could not keep him down. And this is why it's good news that Paul says Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So how can we respond to this? And I propose we can respond a couple of ways. The jealousy of God requires us to be zealous for God. The jealousy of God requires us to be zealous for God as our right response to God's love for us is love for him So our right response to his jealousy over us is to have a zeal for him. A husband works out a zeal for his wife through that covenantal marital relationship. So if I'm interacting with my wife, we have entered into covenant, and I'm serving her, I'm loving her, I'm I'm never going to leave her, I'm never going to pull away from her, I'm always going to continue to try to strive and seek and, and press into her, loving her, sick, healthy, rich, poor. And if I did this year after year after year, and at the end of each year, she was just sort of like, covenantal relationship with John, that's pretty cool. Eh. I'd be like, some, you guys would be like, oh, something's not quite right here. Right? John is displaying the fullness of covenantal love, and her response is, I guess that's good, you know, that kind of, that kind of response. We would go, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Like, how often do we do that to God, right? Like, the right response is, as I'm displaying covenantal love to her, she, with that same, as she is a recipient of that jealousy and that zeal for that right relationship, the right response is for her to go, man, because I'm a recipient, it stirs me up to give, and it stirs then John up to give, which then stirs up charity again. This becomes a big cyclical thing. But what happens so often with us as God, is God displays the full jealousy of him, of of his full jealousy for us in the giving of his son, and then we're often just sort of like, I guess that's cool. And we don't make the connection that because this is true, we are to have a zeal that stirs us up to proclaim that zeal in everywhere that we are. A jealousy for God requires us to be zealous for God. As our right response to God's love for us is love for him. So our right response to his jealousy over us is zeal for him. And then lastly, the wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character which we must frequently bring to mind. So out of all this, we can respond a couple ways, right? We can walk out going, man, that was cool, learn something more about God, and then just boom, completely forget it. But I don't think that's what the scriptures and that's what God desires of us. The desire, I think, is for us to learn about this, let the rightness of it conform our mind to renew our mind so that as we go out of here, we will think of this more often than we do and we will let the wrath of God and the perfection that is displayed in the wrath of God and God's divine character, we want that to frequently come to our mind. Why? So that our hearts may be reminded of how detestable sin is to God. You want to know how detestable sin is to God? Look right there. That's how detestable sin is to God, the cross. 
he hung his son so that the wrath of God would be poured out on his son. So when we think of wrath, it is meant to stir our hearts and to our minds to go, man, sin is detestable to God. So detestable that the Son of God died in our place. And that is meant to lead us and to stir us forth going, man, the good news of the cross is I don't have to have a heart devoted to sin. It is wrong for me to have a heart devoted to sin because it was that detestable sin that hung Christ on the cross in the first place. The wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character which we must frequently bring to mind. Why? So that our hearts may be reminded of how detestable sin is to God. And then finally, so that we may worship rightly for having been delivered from the wrath to come. So this goes back to that little illustration I was saying earlier. So if Austin were to come up and be like, we're going to sing ten songs in a row on the wrath of God. We don't have to be like, all slooped over. What we can do is go, man, that's, I'm in on that. Because the wrath of God is true and it was poured out on the sun. That means I have a real right relationship with God. And that's something to be praised. That's praiseworthy. That's something that we can sit and go, let's, let's do an hour long of worship because wrath is true. Wrath is good. It was poured out on the sun, not poured out on me. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to sing about that. And so what we want to do is let wrath stir our mind and lead us into this direction. It's not some reprehensible attribute of God that we need to sort of somehow be ashamed of, but it is an attribute of God which we can hold up as praiseworthy. Why? Because it is true, poured out on the Son, not us. And now we have right fellowship with God. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Take them, sink them deep, make them come alive. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're going to move into a time of communion. And as we turn our attention to communion, this is a place for those who are believers. So if you are a believer in Christ, we welcome you to come. We welcome you to come and celebrate the breaking of bread because Christ's body is broken. We come, ask you to come and celebrate the pouring out of that juice as you pour it out into your mouth because Christ's blood was poured out for us on the cross. So a good way to respond now is to dwell upon this goodness of that sacrifice, the goodness of God's wrath and God's jealousy in this moment. And as you partake of communion, let this be an act of worship. But if you're not a Christian, the right way for you to respond is to stay away from the table and to consider your sins before God. Because if what we said is true and you refuse the light of Christ and you continue to live your life in darkness, loving evil more than you love good, loving Satan and his ways more than loving God and his ways, there is coming a day where instead of the wrath that was poured out on the sun, it's going to be reserved for you. Why? Because Christ is not standing in your place. And this is now a good and right time for you to respond. Come talk to me or any one of the elders. We'd love to point you to Christ crucified for our sins. As they play, please come forward and partake of